Hi, everybody, and welcome to Kremlin File. Today, we would like to welcome a warm, warm welcome to Ruslan Trad. Hi, hi, hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me here. That's great. We're very happy to have you. Very happy indeed. Ruslan, I think let's just jump in, okay, to the discussion today. Now, you have been monitoring Russia's full-scale invasion and also the war crimes campaign against Ukraine. We all have been watching. Can you tell us the latest, Ruslan? And then I'd also like to ask you another question as well. Also, do you think that Ukraine's increasing attacks against Russia's Black Sea fleet, what we've seen right in the past few days, but also over a period of time, and the strategic targets that we've seen against Crimea, right, will they have an effect of further weakening Russia? First of all, everyone who start such conversation needs to drink a little bit coffee because <laughs> a lot of things happen recently. It's not by coincidence because uh, in my job with my colleagues, uh, and you know this very well, you need to be prepared for uh, such events and developments of the events and develop, developments of the developments constantly, which is hard to understand for people outside our field. And especially when you have events like Ukrainian counter-offensive and the war in general. I think many people outside who are just reading news, they just traveling from home to job. And they, I think sometimes they don't understand how hard it is to not only following the all events, but to explain them in shortened version for everyone else just to 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 help the narrative to help these people who are on the ground as someone who went on, uh, on the on the ground uh, not only in ukraine but in different conflict zones for me sometimes it's difficult to explain the whole situation without going so deep that people start uh, losing interest so uh, just for the past two days before our conversation right now, we have a dozen of uh, events, not only on the front lines, but escalation in the Black Sea region, which I think that will become another battlefield in the recent month, in the in the next month, uh, because the Black Sea region became uh, not uh, important only for Russia and Ukraine, and in the wider region, Turkey, but also for neighbor regions like the Balkans and Caucasus regions, uh, because they are interconnected. And when we are following the recent events, uh, for, for example, the recent attacks on Sevastopol by Ukrainian forces, and we need to put all this in the wider global context, because um, I know it is hard to understand for people who are not involved in following and monitoring all the events. But in our times, we need to put everything in that context, which is <laughs> which is another layer of hardship for journalists and analysts, because we need to be much more aware of what's happening. And I, I need to say that the recent attack on Sevastopol by Ukrainian forces is something very interesting for everyone who are following security field. Because Ukraine 
actually have no fleet. But nevertheless, Ukraine army carried out dif- different attacks at the same time in Sevastopol and in the wider Black Sea, close to the uh, economic zones of Bulgaria and Turkey. And they had, these attacks were very successful, disturbing logistical ways of uh, Russian army di- distributing different goods and, and patrolling Black Sea, which patrolling is considered by NATO as aggressive move. This is very interesting for every analyst to, to follow what Ukraine is doing right now in the Black Sea. This is a country without fleet and with active blockade on, on, the, on the ports by the Black Sea fleet of Russian Federation. And they not only doing this, but they are, I mean, Ukraine, successfully produce maritime drones in the middle of the war. So this is very interesting for everyone in the security field. Yeah. Yeah. And now it is amazing because here Russia has, I mean, going back to the Soviet Union, you know, uh, uh, established Navy. And here you have Ukraine who is sinking ship after ship, damaging ships on. Yes. And and I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, this I'm sure people in Washington's eyes are open because, you know, these are the same people who expected Ukraine to fall within a few days. And here you have Ukraine <laughs> damaging Russia's, you know, established uh, century old naval system. Just the, the thing I was just going to say, it changes all the calculations, right, Ruslan? So everything before was based on certain, right, parameters. Yeah. But now this is a different way of looking or trying to assess even for the future, because we had also asked you, for example, will it have an effect? Will it deteriorate further, right? Russia's uh, capabilities in the Black Sea. I guess they're calculating that. Is that possible at all to be able to, to see whether that could happen? The answer is a little bit more complex because Russian Federation is not acting logically, not at least not for Western mind. Russian Federation army is in very bad shape. This is true. But in the same time, especially after the so-called mutiny of uh, Prigozhin and this, I I say so-called because I have different theory for this rebellion. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) But this this event provoked actually unification of officer staff in, in Russian Federation. And unfortunately for Ukraine and for the Western allies, um, there is a problem with strategy on the on the ground. I mean, Black Sea is one story, but battlefield in Zaporizhia and Bakhmut is different story. Because Ukraine have problems, they recognize these problems, quite opposite on what happened in Russia, because we don't know what's happening inside. Uh, because there is no criticism, uh, only from military bloggers in Telegram. In Ukraine, the situation is different. Officers, and including the president himself, are very critical to what's happening inside the army and the problems they are facing. They, I mean, the officer staff of Ukraine, are a little bit angry right now to their allies because, unfortunately, the main strategist located in Brussels or or Paris or Washington, they expect something unrealistically right now. Mm. 
because the ground in Ukraine is totally different from the experience the Western allies are providing to Ukrainian soldiers, not only because they have no experience, but this is different experience, different from Afghanistan, different from uh, Africa. Ukrainian battlefields are really, really hard, and they are really difficult to maintain, and the Ukrainian army, first of all, have more limited manpower, and including even using all of the equipment uh, they received from the Western powers, it's not enough because, first of all, they have no air power, still lacking, which is one of the big criticism and the low points of supporting Ukraine, including right now there is a debate to provide or not to provide Air, uh, Air Force, which is, uh, for me, is not logical and uh, unnecessary. So we have different battlefields. Black Sea is easier right now for Ukraine because Ukraine have modern and different strategy from Soviet Union time, which uh, Russian Federation is still using as a mindset. But on the battlefield in Zaporizhia, in general in southern part of Ukraine and Bakhmut and Donetsk regions, the fortifications are really good prepared. And unfortunately, this is partly to blame the slow logistic and support of Ukrainian army because the Russian army had months to prepare. I would add also that it has to do with the fact that the West spent six, eight months debating whether they should send tanks or, you know, other weapon systems fully watching, you know, via satellite that Russia was placing mines and knowing Russia's mentality that they have never cared about human life and will throw a million people into the front to get slaughtered. They don't care as long as, you know, they could keep it going. And I mean, had the West, you know, the decisions that eventually they made, had they did this earlier in late winter and early spring, Ukraine would have been, you know, definitely more successful with the counteroffensive right now. But I mean, this is... And with all present problems inside the Russian Federation, we have different scenarios. One part of these scenarios are for the near future, which is mostly on what's happening in battlefield. The second part of scenarios are relating to this, let's say, far future, uh, which means decade or two decades since now. The Russian Federation is experiencing right now in very big troubles, to, to use these historical terms, because unfortunately for the Russian politicians, Putin himself, who pretend to know Russian history, he is making the same mistakes like before. This is the reason why I'm using this term troubles, because there, there are different situations in the western part of the country and the eastern part of the country. And that is the reason I'm telling everyone to put all these events in the global context, because while the battlefields are active in Ukraine, the Russian Federation have internal problems which are affecting decision-making and also is very likely to increase the Chinese influence 
globally and especially and particularly in eastern part of Russian Federation, which can also create tension between the Kremlin, the republics in the Far East. So as analyst, I want to to follow all these events inside Russian Federation because the battlefield is difficult for Russian Federation, but it's something they can maintain at least for a year or two years since now. But the internal problems provoked by this war, this this will be another story. Olga, you've been saying this for for ages. Let's let's take a look and focus and focus and focus. These are the problems. That- that's you why I I laughed last year. Was it last year or this year? I don't know. Time time doesn't exist for me. But when um Xi went to to Russia and the West panicked and ever they put out every analyst on TV and they're like, oh look at this newfound relationship and and I'm like, do they understand a history between China and Russia? The distrust between China and Russia that Russia is always looking over its shoulder because uh, China can at any moment take the far. I mean, Xi was there for, you know, it's a bargain basement for him right now. He basically is getting everything on sale inside of Russia, the resources. Um, And in the process, you know, it's a way to stand up together against the West. Yeah. But it is not a relationship. I mean, even last, what was it, summer, they arrested a series of uh, scientists, including one who developed hypersonic um, missiles for treason for selling secrets to the Chinese. And this is at the height of when Russia and China are supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, best friends. So I'm also more skeptical on on this. Recently, in the news analysts are commenting the meeting between Putin and Kim Jong-un, I would say, very enthusiastically. For Russia, this is not good news no. because the Kremlin knows very well that at the same time when the train enters Russian Federation, it means that the North Korean espionage are already there. And they need the secrets of the Kremlin because they need to establish better technology and to develop this whole systems and networks for North Korean army and defense. So what is what means is that Putin is ready to sacrifice his national security interests. Yes, yes, just for his own goals. It is like Chinese good example. There is only one bridge between Russian Federation and Chinese border. Can you imagine the whole border? You you have only one bridge. This is very telling for the the relationship because this is not a relationship this is something by agreement and the history between the two countries is very difficult this is the, this is the situation between russia and iran because the hardliners in tehran consider russia as oppressor and they constantly remind of the soviet occupation of iran so russia have problems with all neighbors because of the colonialism in 19th century, because uh, of the imperial politics during the Soviet time. And right now for Putin and his circle is very difficult to negotiate because they they have nothing to negotiate. Yep. I actually tweeted and then to move on, but I actually tweeted that, I mean, frankly, for all Russians and for Putin himself, um, you know, Meeting with Kim Jong-un on a red carpet and welcoming him and creating that whole circus, 
show. Yeah. Honestly, it's the biggest humiliation for Russians. And yeah. I mean, I don't think Putin in the past several decades on his worst day ever, ever thought that he would have to like kneel down to Kim Jong-un, especially you know the Soviet Union, you know the Russian mentality and the racism they have for anyone who is not ethnic Russian. I mean, they have names for the most part for uh, ethnicities inside of Russia. They kind of, you know, treat them and have names for them for Kazakhs, Bulgarians, Belarusians, for everyone. And I mean, here, it's a very interesting situation and just show more signs that, you know, Russia's on its downward spiral. Now, to move on, for many years, you know, many, not many, some analysts were very concerned about the Black Sea. Russia has always, you know, attempted to treat it as its own personal, you know, lake, uh, occasionally doing blockades. I remember in, I believe it was 2019, when Russia slammed a Ukrainian vessel and took Ukrainians hostage in the Sea of Azov. And I mean, it's been a problem. And for the most part, I mean, it was a drowned out issue because you saw some analysts who were focusing on the Black Sea really concentrating on it while the majority of people in NATO didn't seem too concerned. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a shift of this? And do you see NATO becoming more involved and actually, you know, now having a strategy with securing the Black Sea? Yes, NATO and particularly uh, United Kingdom they become more, let's say, involved, interested by, but it's late. I mean, it is late to it is not late to establish security network systems to develop and to provide assistance to local governments. It's late for providing better picture and influence in the region. Fortunately, the whole region of the Balkans after the wars after Yugoslavia, it became secondary news. But this is not the same with Russia. The Balkans were always and still are very important detail of the Russian foreign policy. In, in this term, Russian world, you know what is mean. Mm -hmm. And many people in the Balkans knows that very well. Unfortunately, the West abstained for decades. And right now, because of the war in Ukraine, many strategists, they realize that the war in Ukraine is not just the war in Ukraine. The front lines is maybe, how say, the bloodiest part of the war is in Ukraine, but the front line is uh, from Kiev to Tripoli, to Mali, to Central African Republic. And this whole front line, Russians are better in providing influence, assistance, support, and spreading across the regions. Unfortunately, Black Sea region is um, one of these regions forgotten from the West. And why, unfortunately? Because it's strategically important globally, not only for the Balkans or Turkey or Caucasus regions, but we already witnessed what happened with after the blockade, well, after the failing of the grain deal. The consequences felt long, far from the borders of, of these regions. Yes, fortunately, NATO is uh, right now is really active 
including in Bulgaria and Romania and Turkey is much easier because they have, even with all problems with the members of NATO, Turkey is uh, much in much better position. But Bulgaria and Romania and let's say the central uh, part of Europe, um, we need a lot of co- cooperation, a lot of establishment of uh, networks and systems of uh, countering uh, Russian espionage, even after all arrests in in the in the region so uh, nato and i i mentioned united kingdom because historically united kingdom have interests in the region and they are returning right now with new teams uh, new agents deployed on the ground including in sofia but they are facing big difficulties because of of the pre-existence uh, russian networks especially in Bulgaria. Romania is uh, better in that condition, but Bulgaria is terrible. Uh, We have a political elite and people commanding armed forces, police forces, who are sympathizers to to the Kremlin. Even we are not counting actual agents who are paid to do or sabotaging. People sympathizers to the Kremlin are happy to contribute and to assist the Kremlin. We have uh, examples in Bulgaria of politicians voluntarily helping the Kremlin. And maybe you know the news, I'm sure you know, uh, for arresting uh, Bulgarians in the United Kingdom before a few weeks, they are voluntarily helping the Kremlin. They received money much later. (laughs) So this is telling for the mentality of these networks. That's because Russia targets the countries that they used to occupy and, you know, make sure to to keep the control. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, Just to quickly follow up, uh, we've seen uh, Romania, this is probably the third or fourth instance of uh, drone fragments falling on Ukrainian soil. They've even summoned the Russian ambassador. Do you think NATO, now Romania is a NATO country, do you think that this potentially might escalate? And do you think NATO is, you know, really paying attention to this? Oh, definitely NATO is paying attention to what's happening in Romania, especially on the Ukrainian ports are under attack in the new driver. We are, we are witnessing changing of routes, because of the blockade in the Black Sea, the new driver is becoming more strategically important for Ukraine and the West. And the local governments, which means Romania and Bulgaria, are paying much more attention and they are trying to uh, sign new agreements, which is causing internal problems. Because, for example, in Bulgaria, there was a very hit debate in the parliament, Bulgaria to continue or not uh, opposition to uh, exporting Ukrainian grain. NATO is paying attention to the region, especially with the escalation with, of Russian attacks in the region, very close to the Romanian border. And this is the second time of a Romanian army founding parts of uh, Russian drones. But um, NATO is, first of all, there is a internal resistance to escalation, thinking about military escalation. But NATO is ready for deploying troops and maybe providing Ukraine with special operations, which is also bad news for Russia. So I will be not surprised if NATO countries in the Black Sea region 
or in the Baltics are providing Ukrainians with even with uh, territory for carrying out special operations against Russian territory. This is, this is something already a part of the discussions because mm -hmm. especially the British officers are willing to carry out operations on Russian side, which is a different story yeah. and yeah. problem for the Russian Federation. Yeah. Speaking of agreements, Ruslan, I wanted to go back for just a second to NATO and Bulgaria, okay, because I think it's interesting what's going on now. Um, from my reading, Bulgaria is negotiating, is it not, right, with, uh, with its NATO's allies on how to respond to the Russian provocations in the Black Sea. Um, so in regard to the blockades that you mentioned, okay, and that we can all see, uh, can you give us a little more details about these negotiations between Bulgaria and NATO? Yeah, some of the details are, are classified right now because of the ongoing talks. But the new defense minister, Todor Tagarev, is absolutely pro-Ukrainian and coming from the highest level of uh, NATO officers. He's also a little bit hawkish by Bulgarian standards, which Bulgaria needs right now because the defense and security establishment is very weak right now. And Tagarev, he, he's willing to reform the army and the defense systems, networks. And so since the, the, the first day of the mandate of Tagarev, he entered with discussions and debates with NATO on how to re-establish the presence of the alliance in, uh, in Bulgaria. And we have signals for that, for uh, Bulgaria providing more equipment to Ukrainian army, including maritime corridors, which is very important for Ukraine, both in uh, military and economic uh, levels, because Ukraine can use the corridor through Bulgarian maritime zones to, to export grain without being harassed by Russian ships. In the same time, Bulgarian equipment is quite popular in Ukraine, and I believe Bulgaria will provide more equipment to Ukrainian army, which is essential right now. So there is there is also negotiations of providing intelligence, and that is the reason why Budanov was in Sofia before a few weeks. And I believe this cooperation will be even more active. But uh, on NATO's side, I think NATO will uh, deploy more troops in Bulgaria in the coming months. You spoke earlier about Russia's uh, full-scale invasion and going beyond Ukraine's borders. said that it causes an existential threat to the region and, frankly, you know, goes everywhere from wherever Russia's fingerprints are, which is pretty much across Latin America and Africa and uh, Middle East and, and <laughs> even Madagascar. I mean, yeah. they're literally everywhere. everywhere. Um, and you also touched about um, the sympathizers in Bulgaria and, you know, and basically siding with the Kremlin. We know for decades that Russia has, you know, conducted malign influence operations inside of Bulgaria. Can you discuss, and we even had a few oligarchs 
No, I apologize. We had one oligarch, Malofeyev, and his SVR partner, Roshetnikov, banned from Bulgaria. Can you um, discuss the tactics that they use inside in order to destabilize the country? Yeah, this is Bulgaria is a good example for textbooks, how Russian influence and previously the Soviet Union influence is working in the region. Bulgaria, first of all, was one of the most loyal states to the Soviet Union. Even the political elite proposed Bulgaria to become part of the Soviet Union. So this legacy is currently affecting the next generation, which is the current generation of politicians. That is the reason, one of the reasons why we have political party like Revival, which, which parties even proud they are receiving support from the Kremlin. This is a long history. <laughs> Many of the current events, they started in the 90s and even before that, of uh, establishing such influence that I already mentioned this case from United Kingdom, that people voluntarily helping the Kremlin. Maufev is interesting oligarch. He's investing in uh, very specific operations related to history and religion. He's radical in his religious views. He's believer, not just someone who has money and investing in religious things. He's believer. That is one of the problems why such people are so popular and among the circles of pro-Russian politicians and intellectuals. And Roshetnikov is he's still a very important person for Bulgarian politics. Even after he left Bulgaria, he's currently operating from the Russian Federation territory. But, for example, even the president, Rumen Radev, have links to Roshetnikov. In, uh, 20, in uh, 2016, there was a meeting between the socialist leader Kornelia Ninova and Reshetnikov, and they discussed how to help and assist Rumen Radev to become the president. So he became president. He's in his, his second term, and his words became more radical, more pro-Russian radical. And uh, the socialist leader is denying this meeting. But the Reshetnikov told about this meeting in one of the Russian television. <laughs> so he's proud because this operation was so successful. They have the president. The company behind uh, the main campaign of Roman Radev is also a, of uh, its kind of institute, but linked to SVR. It is quite popular. They don't hide this because they are proud. So this is not a mystery who is behind the president. Roshetnikov is, and Roshetnikov and Maufeyev, they are part of network, part of, how to say, profile of Russian intellectual intellectuals and officers with really typical mentality of how to provide and help Russian influence in, in regions like the Balkans. These kind of oligarchs and intellectuals are very involved in establishing networks of supporters across the region. It's a network which Wagner is also part of this network. Uh, in, in the When analysts speaking about Wagner, they are missing the history before Wagner. 
And that Wagner is just part of white network across Europe mostly, but they have influence all, uh, also in the United States because of sports clubs. And this network was established a decade ago or even more with sports clubs and uh, intellectuals who are working of revising history and providing the pro-Russian stance in history. The history is very important part of how we can understand what's happening with this network. This network also provided volunteers for Donbas army. They helped the separatists, they helped the Russian forces, including Bulgarian citizens. They went to Donbas and fight for Russia thanks to this network. And Wagner and other units like uh, Enot, because many analysts forgot about Enot, but Enot is very typical example how this network is working in the Balkans. Even after disbanding Enot, the network of this group is still active in Bosnia, Herzegovina and Serbia. And these people are quite radical in, in, in thinking, quite fascist. They are proud with that, mixing with paganism and ultra-Orthodox. And in that way, they are targeting very wide and big part of the population in the Balkans. That is the reason why many youths are sympathizers. They went to patriotic camps. In Bulgaria, we have these uh, patriotic clubs. They are discussing history, but with Russian, pro-Russian stance. And this network is, if you start digging, you you definitely find the Russian connection. Including in small villages, not in the biggest cities in the in, in Bulgaria or Serbia, in smallest villages. And these sports clubs are clubs are very important for the network. Reshetnikov at Maufev, they influence religious practices around the country also. And in a country like Bulgaria, where the Communist Party was so powerful that people were forbidden to went to in, into church. Uh, right now, we, we are witnessing revival. These pro-Russian circles are calling them traditional values of Bulgarians. But mm. some of these practices were invented in the 70s. Can you imagine that many of these people don't know that? Yeah. 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 And I just want to widen out a little bit. Um, so yeah. I mentioned Malofeyev. His full name is Konstantin Malofeyev. He's known as the Orthodox King, whatever. <laughs> Every media outlet has their own little, you know, subtitle. He's indicted by United States for interfering in U.S. elections, for uh, circumventing sanctions. Um, and he also runs operations via NGOs, think tanks across all of Europe and basically through the far right, through the monarchy routes, going back to the Tsars. Um, and through basically anything through youth programs, like you said, all across Europe. And he's connected with Leonid Reshetnikov, who was a high level, was, is a high level SVR, which is Russia's foreign intelligence services, who also ran operations against the U.S. 2016 election. He was the one who actually finalized the plan to hand over to Putin from the Strategic Institute, which is an old Soviet KGB institute renamed 
Um, and he also runs operations everywhere from Bulgaria to Germany, France, Italy, yeah. Austria, yeah. Hungary, Greece, Africa, Syria, as well as Malofeo. So just to yeah. give a context to how wide this is, how you can yeah. go to the smallest village in Bulgaria where you see these operations and then expand out globally and see the same players. And they have a whole focus on youth programs. Russia's intelligence services has a whole focus on youth programs, and they set up youth programs everywhere from Rome to Paris to Sofia to U.S., and then try to indoctrinate, um, you know, uh, people living in those countries in order to basically um, have them turn against their countries. And lastly, Malofeyev in U.S. goes through the evangelical and, frankly, any religious route yeah uh, anything they weaponize traditional values and this is how they carry out their operations is also or he was active in syria too yeah he sponsored uh, orthodox activities in syria because it was a very successful operation and africa yeah, yeah. we yeah. have to have you back for a whole show on this because this is yeah this worst. is this is really really fascinating no because this thing Listening to you, Ruslan, and also Olga, I mean, in Italy as well, you know, there's the whole network uh, that's there and I can see it and, you know, and the whole business. And one Um, tiny second, sorry, just to show you, this is Russia's mentality for centuries where you praise the God and the Orthodox and it's supposed to be, you know, this hand in hand with mercenaries, terrorists who decapitate murder people at mass numbers. So this is just, you know, orthodox and wiping out villages of people, raping women. It goes hand in hand in Russia's centuries-old mentality. Go ahead, Mo. Yeah, no. One thing, Ruslan, that I wanted to ask you, because we keep seeing this designation in the press and we keep saying it's not a PMC. Could you please clarify for everyone who's listening because there are people that don't know right i mean we're on this every day we're looking at this could you sort of explain a little bit very briefly what is the relationship between right yeah. wagner which i don't i'm just going to say wagner i'm not going to say anything else wagner and the kremlin for example the defense ministry can you explain that and yeah. intelligence yeah. wagner is like uh, schrodinger cat they are not and not mercenaries. <laughs> that is the reason. Uh, this is very, very Slavic thing, very Russian and Eastern European thing. For anyone living in our region, it's very easy to understand what Wagner is. We experience it. Even me, I'm 36 old, but I remember in the 90s and the beginning of the next period, the, these mobsters supported by the government exchange of agreement and deals. Wagner is like this security company on steroids, whole system of the military of Russian Federation behind them. Many, many analytical texts, they, they, are, for, they are missing, I don't know why, the history before Wagner, which is one of the most crucial moments of this model. First of all, Wagner is just a continuation of the model. Tsarist Russia provided and established uh, centuries ago with the most prominent and closest examples coming from Iran, 
than Persia, when in the 19th century, Russia provided such unit, commanded by a Russian officer, in helping one of the political sites in Iran. Then we have uh, examples in, uh, in the beginning of 20th century with the first Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in 1929. After that, 50 years ago, the second invasion of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, they provided such units so-called Muslim battalions. So the many officers participated in these operations. They prepared the actual invasion, going to Afghanistan months before the actual invasion, and even using clothes of Afghan soldiers. They they are calling, calling themselves Muslim battalions because many of the soldiers in these units were from Kazakh and Kyrgyz origin and they spoke the local languages in Afghanistan. This was one of the most prominent and most important psychological uh, and military operations of the Soviet Union. And this model provided the basis of Wagner and before that the Slavonic Corps. Slavonic Corps unit, it was um, totally favored for Russia. In Syria, they acted one year before the actual creation of Wagner, and they were ambushed in Syria, and many of the soldiers decided to go back to St. Petersburg. They were arrested right on the airport, so we wow. don't know what's happening with them after that. But one year after this fiasco in Syria, uh, Dmitry Utkin, who participated in Slavonic Corps and also is veteran from Afghanistan, he created this unit as part of wider effort from Russian military intelligence. The problem was who will finance this operation because this should be in the gray zone. This unit should be not so visible and Russia need to have the luxury of denying any links to, to this unit, like in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. Because the Soviet Union at that time denying any links to these battalions. So the model is repeating itself, but the Putin recycled this model to the modern times. And in Syria and annexation of Crimea, it was the birth of, you know, of Wagner. And why I'm critical to this I would say, uh, explanation that Wagner is a private mercenary company. It It is a private company because it's registered somewhere in the world, in Hong Kong, in uh, Buenos Aires, not in the Russian Federation, because you know that it's forbidden in Russia to have mercenary company, even with all the record, because the, the Russian Federation used such companies in the Yugoslavian wars, uh, in Chechnya and in different parts of the world because of their operations outside the Russian Federation. But Wagner, yes, as company, is really private company because it's registered somewhere. But the core of this uh, unit, I'm calling it unit because this unit is in the same time part of the military complex of the Russian Federation. This is not by coincidence that even even the headquarters were the same of Spetsnaz in Mokino. But the operations are privately financed by Prigozhin and others. Prigozhin was the biggest one. But the businessman who wants to receive deals 
and percentage from the presence of Russia somewhere in the world. In that case, Syria, Central African Republic, Libya, they received part of the deal in exchange of supporting these operations. But in the same time, in Syria, Wagner became a fighting force. So they changed the model. If you remember, there was reports of um, new units in Syria, Turan group, SHIELD or STIT group. They, they are part of this model. People fighting in these companies are actually soldiers under Wagner. So the Wagner is the main corps. And they they became fighting force in uh, Homs province in, in uh, Syria during the battles for Palmyra, during the battles against the rebels in uh, Aleppo. And they became really good in that because Wagner is not just a unit, but they have also electronic warfare equipment. They have also political scientists uh, owned by Prigozhin and his agencies before as you say it in Madagascar for influencing political parties, but Wagner is also fighting force, defending the most important thing for Russia is defending the trade routes, accessing resources and energy is one of the ways how to bypass sanctions. So Wagner defends these trade routes. They negotiated even with criminals in Africa and Middle East, just to provide this continuation of uh, logistical routes to Russian Federation with gold and other resources. In Ukraine, we had the third, I would say, period of Wagner. It was unexpected because Wagner is created mainly for foreign operations. In Ukraine, Wagner became part of the military efforts because they were the most prepared units among the military. But in the time when Russian military became more prepared for carrying out operations in Ukraine, you witnessed what happened with Wagner. Start struggling with officers, general staff, and Prigozhin start slowing becoming a threat. Very quickly, um, so for the past almost decade since the creation of Wagner, basically Russia denied, uh, had plausible deniability for their operations. They always kept, you know, a few degrees of separation so they could, you know, conduct these atrocities without being charged for war crimes uh, across the globe. Um, recently, we see have seen several European countries, UK and US, designate Wagner a terrorist organization. But at the same time, we saw Putin in a very, very bizarre moment, which shows more that he's unraveling, proudly flaunt that the state has been injecting billions of dollars into Wagner. Why do you think he did it very quickly? And do you think it's, uh, you know, these designations of a terrorist organization is going to have an impact on their global operations? I'm critical to that decision because Wagner is, it's not a separate group of unit, company, corps, or whatever, whatever you want to describe mm. it. Wagner is actual part of Russian military. You cannot recognize them as terrorist entity without mentioning the links to the Russian state. It's like IRGC and Iran. It's the same thing. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a way to of de-escalation. That is the problem. Because Wagner is as a military unit. I had a lecture in Poland before a few months, and mm-hmm. I spoke about Wagner. And one of the students asked me, okay, how to deal with Wagner? My answer then and now is with special operation. Wagner is a military unit. You cannot fight them with sanctions. They will and they are very active still in Africa and Middle East and other regions. That is the reason this politics of de-escalation, providing additional doors for debates with Russian Federation, this is part of the problem because Putin knows very well he have still green light. And Putin actually did, I mean, he confirmed every main investigation of Wagner. He just confirmed, yes, we put money in that unit. And this is truth. I mean, he telling us a lot of lies. This is truth. Mm-hmm. And this is why he did that, because this is for internal usage. Wagner and let's say the musicians, you know, they are calling calling themselves musicians. I want to say that many people discussing fascists and other groups, oh, Ukrainian forces have fascists. Yes, I ask why Wagner is called Wagner. Exactly, exactly. This is another story. But because of this story and the, the wider influence of such ideology among youths in in Russian Federation, because this is a problem for Russia since 19s. And Wagner became part of uh, pop culture. Wagner became part and role model for many, including ordinary soldiers. And Putin did that for internal usage, because he knows Wagner is so popular that people will rebel against government if Wagner disappeared. They became heroes, they have comics, they have even hip-hop songs. There's a whole culture around it. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why you see Putin is unraveling because, you know, normally, like, he would be able to balance this. Yeah. But when he has to be split to satisfy the domestic versus jeopardizing his overseas operations, you know, it shows that, again, he's losing, you know. For me, the most important and most dangerous legacy of Wagner is the cultural legacy. Mm -hmm. Because as as fighting unit, you have tools how to counter a military unit, how to counter a culture. Because they are quite popular, including in Bulgaria and the Balkans including among West countries, far right, including in the United States. In fact, Ruslan, I wanted to ask you before we we, ask the last question, Alpha, I wanted to ask you, since we're talking about these groups, right, and different, has Wagner impacted or have they been, like, what kind of groups are, let's say, have relations with Wagner? What other kinds of groups should we be looking at? This question is, more about the network which Wagner is part of. This network of patriotic values, traditional values, history, religion, because this network is composed of political parties sponsored Mm -hmm. by the Kremlin, mainly in Europe, influencing history and patriotism 
across Europe, but mainly with focus on eastern part of the Europe, and units like Wagner and Tenot. We have differences here. In, in one part is Wagner and the golden boys of military intelligence. The second part is Enot and groups linked to FSB. So they, they have the main goal, establishing influence of Russia in that region, but they have different tools how to provide that. I think we need more to discuss Enot and such groups. The legacy of groups like Enot, the legacy of groups uh, established at the first invasion a few years ago in Donbass, because that was the birthplace of such groups. These groups have maintained very good relations with uh, nationalists and far right in the Balkans and West Europe. They have also good relations with Nordic movements. So if you take all of them in the same place, you see the similarities in ideology and in why or another way they are supporting Russia. That was one of the main efforts of Putin Russia to establish such network of providing the next generation of Russian supporters, but not in the Soviet means, but of terrorism and the imperial Russia, because Putin is not replicating Soviet Union, but imperial Russia. Mm -hmm. That is the main mistakes many analysts are. They are considered Putin as continuation of the Soviet time. He's not interested. If you remember when it was 100 years after the October Revolution, there was nothing in Russia. He don't care about this because he and Dugin, the main influencer behind Putin, and he's telling that the history of Russia as one monolith without any problems for the past 100 years. So for Putin, Petrushev and Dugin, Russia is just the imperial Russia with changing name. And they pulled out the best tactics of the Soviet Union that they reuse and from the various security services. But we even saw, you know, I mean, years ago, I remember reading an article in Russian press and it was basically, should we go back to a, tsar, a tsarism system? Then they floated mm -hmm. the, from your yep. end, the Italian who married the what was it, a Romanov lineage from the Tsars. Yep in yeah. St. Petersburg, and they yeah. made a huge event that. about it. It's, a, it's like a combination of both systems where they pull out the best. She was the daughter of an ambassador, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, but she could have also noble lineage as well, because we know that the ambassadors in Italy, all of that kind of thing, they come from families who have deep roots, uh, the good families, you know, the well, way that they... And that's how Russia is, because, you know, you had the Tsars who established, you know, control by pushing that they were, you know, appointed by God and sent down by God. And then you had Stalin, who, you know, was an atheist and who brought back the Orthodox Church after the revolution. Basically, everyone was massacred and the priest arrested killed and then Stalin brought it back for an intelligence operation and one I mean to build this patriotic support in the country but also as you know an intelligence operation because he put you know at the time like one of the senior heads of KGB to oversee the Orthodox Church and I mean even now we have you know the patriarchal 
who is a former KGB agent. And Russia, this actually is one thing that's been bothering me because the Orthodox Church is the one operation that Russia can continue running across the world. And everyone is scared to look inside the church, despite it being basically another arm of intelligence services. Yeah. Like in one of the, uh, the cases of uh, evolving priests is in Norway, where in Murmansk, <laughs> they established a new church, I think, in Svalbard. Mm-hmm. And uh, the new church is the priest of this church is agent of national security. <laughs> and this priest received funds from uh, sympathizers to buy the territory, the land of, of this church. And by coincidence, this church is looking at the Norway Army Observation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I read about that. Yeah, we have a few we have a few uh, orthodox churches here too strategically placed uh US military bases and I'm gonna start mapping all yeah. of them here in Italy and check to see where they are exactly. Oh yeah, here. now you'll see. You'll see. <laughs> they probably so, have antennas and people. Then I'll call the two of you and say, "Look, look what I found." Yeah. I want to say that because maybe some listeners will say we are paranoid or something like that but no this is this is not just paranoia i mean this is a mm. model developed for decades and it yeah. is a quick coincidence why putin is replicating or attempting to replicate the imperial russia this is the tools of imperial russia i mean even even Soviet Union were more tolerating country than Imperial Russia. And this is a problem for white Russians. And this is the reason why Putin is, he's considering Soviet Union and the people around Putin consider Soviet Union as foreign thing. I mean, conspiracy against Russia because of this story of how uh, Lenin have supported by uh, Germans to overthrow the the Tsarist family, and many nationalists in Russia consider the Soviet Union as part of the problem. Hmm. And that's well, what Russia does. They they, yeah, they no, hold both threads because at one end they'll you know yeah. host holidays and rise up the Soviet Union for you know all the babushkas and dedushkas who still oh, remember the, the good old Soviet days. Yeah, the irony here is that one of the main opposition blocs against Putin is Communist Party right now. The Communist Party of Russia is one of the main oppositions. Wow. You remember he, during those elections, we covered it a few years ago. I told you he was rounding up the communists, the deputies across different regions. And I was like, this communist uh, united Russia battle is something to watch out for because it was interesting. Yeah, Ruslan, yeah. thank you so much. We um definitely need to have you back on, honestly, oh, for yeah. two different episodes. One specifically on the Russian church and the weaponization yeah. of traditional values, and one yeah. specifically on the mercenary groups and, and that because I mean it's they're both such fascinating and underreported topics or incorrectly reported. Or incorrectly reported, right. Yes. Thank you, Nilsson. Thank you for this conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, everybody. 
If you enjoyed our podcast and would like to help us with our independent work, subscribe to Kremlin File on Substack or YouTube. Kremlin File is hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monika Mara. Production and theme music by Oreste Kamata. Please don't forget to visit our Substack and write to us with your comments or questions, which we'll address in our weekly episodes. Thanks for listening to Kremlin File.